Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 60 of Unmasked. I am your host, Neil Getzlow. As always, thank you for coming on this journey with me. Truly appreciate it. I'm so glad that you're here. And if you are a new listener, uh, I am very blessed and appreciative that you're here as well. And I encourage you to scroll through your podcast feed for this show and check out some of the older episodes and, and hear some of the uh, awesome guests that we've had on the previous 59 episodes of Unmasked. And I also have to to put this out there. So it's been 12 days since I released uh, episode number 59. And I had been actually aiming to um, get these out on Mondays, back on Mondays going forward, because, well, frankly, Unmasked Monday just sounds a heck of a lot better than like Unmasked Thursday or Unmasked Friday. Uh, okay, so... I came close. Today's episode is coming out on a Wednesday. I was just two days behind. So I'm going on record right now. Episode 61 of the show is coming out on Monday, May 1st. Mark it down. You heard it here first. All right. All right. So uh, before we before we introduce today's guest, I, I do want to share this quote with you. Uh, someone from my church, a dear friend, shared this quote with me, and it just it just hit my heart the right way, and I wanted to share it with you. And I don't know who to attribute this quote to. There's no name, but just enjoy it anyways. We run at a breakneck pace to try and achieve, but what God simply wants for us is to slow down enough to receive. He really does have it all worked out. The gaps are filled. The heartache is eased. The provision is ready. The needs are met. The questions are answered. The problems are solved. Fully, completely, perfectly, in him, with him, by him. We just have to turn to him and sit with him. And I don't know why, but that just, I, I needed to hear that this week. My I needed to reposition my heart. It's been a busy few weeks for me, both uh, professionally and personally. And sometimes when you get that busy, like all that buzz in your, in your ears of busyness, it takes you away from the voice of God. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we try to have this giant worldly influence when all God really wants is for us to focus on what's right in front of us. And, and so that reminded me, so this quote I just shared kind of ties into um, a point that I heard in the sermon over the weekend at, at my church from the Reverend Jimmy Bratcher. So he was in a show last year on this podcast, so go check him out. But he shared uh, one of his main points was, the people that you love the most Make sure those are the people that you are influencing the most. And so, like I said, sometimes we just have this big, we want to have this big worldly influence when all God wants to do is focus on what's right in front of us. And that's helping our husbands and wives, our kids, our families, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ is, is helping to, helping draw them closer to God. And it's, it's as simple as that. And it was just, it was just a good reminder for me, uh, as, uh, as I was heading into the middle of this week. So I wanted to share that with you. All right, let's jump into today's episode number 60 with Craig Martin and Craig is co-host and co-producer of the good road on national public TV now filming its fourth season. And Craig has spent the past 30 years filming in war zones, disaster zones, He's been in remote villages in more than 85 countries. And in fact, we we get into the little bit about this in, on today's show. At the beginning of his career, he uh, was at a public TV affiliate in Waco, Texas. And he was actually one of the first on the scene to film the Branch Davidian siege for the McNeil-Lair News Hour. And as we were talking about this, I'm, I call, I'm calling myself out on this just in case you catch it too. I actually called them the Branch Covidians <laughs> during the interview with Craig. Definitely a Freudian slip going on there, but I thought you might appreciate uh, that laugh. Um, Craig was born and raised in, in Thailand, and today he's really focused on helping to drive culture change and, and helping all of us expand our worldview by giving us experiences and showing us experiences from other cultures, whether that's a culture that's in the U.S., which we we may live in the same country, but we still can be culturally very foreign to each other or from a culture around the globe. And he's also got a new project coming up that's uh, producing a video 
and telling stories from many different angles around the sex trafficking crisis that's happening not only in the U.S., but around the globe. So with that, let's jump into episode number 60 of Unmasked, and today we're unmasking the journey of Craig Martin. Hey, Craig, thanks for coming on the Unmasked podcast. Hey, look, you you um, have had a successful career, a very long career in, in journalism and in doing um, video projects, producing projects. Um, and before I get into that, I do want to just, I know you've got an interesting story when it comes to just uh, your faith journey. And so we'd love to, we'd love just to, first, if you want, want to take a second and introduce yourself and then, yeah, share, share a little bit about your faith journey. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Craig Martin and um, I co-host and um, co-produce uh, a show called The Good Road, which is uh, on national public television. I um, we're now be, we'll be filming for our fourth season, so we've been on the air for a little while now. And um, for me, that's uh, that's kind of a culmination in a in a in a career um, that has been interesting. Well, let me back up. I, I so I was born and raised in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And uh, my parents were Southern Baptist missionaries, and um, I left at 18 and um, discovered film and television uh, as, a, as a possible career um, at Baylor University, where I went to uh, undergrad and got my graduate degree. And um, for me, um, that, you know, led me on, on my path to different jobs and things. And I started really in public television, spent about four years working at a, a PBS station in Waco, Texas, which um, is no longer there, KCTF. Um, but um, after about four years of that, I got a call. Um, I had been doing some work with the International Mission Board, who my parents had worked for for 36 years, um, and who I like to say I was kind of born into the organization. Um, but I got a call from them saying that they had a job opening and um, that idea excited me and so I worked for them for about 26 years so a large part of my uh, career was um, as I joke now was doing Baptist propaganda but um, <laughs> but um, but I learned a lot on that uh, you know through that experience and I you know was Gosh, um, eight, almost 90 countries, um, you know, in terms of my work, uh, been in the middle of uh, war zones. Uh, in fact, I was on the border with Kosovo uh, during that crisis and a um, place called Ambon, Indonesia, left in the middle of a, of a crazy battle um, with some jihadists uh, kind of attacking Christian churches and villages. So I just had a lot of experience traveling internationally um, and working, um, doing producing and doing video for them. Um, and then when I left them, uh, a gentleman, Earl Bridges, who I um, grew up with in Thailand, uh, contacted me. We hadn't really seen each other since high school, but um, he uh, wanted me to go on a trip with him and another woman that went to my high school, the international school. Um, and we went, basically wound up going to Nepal, Myanmar and Vietnam. And it was on that trip that Earl pitched this idea of doing the TV show. So, which is what I do full time um, along with a bunch of other things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. For sure. And, and I, I do want to get into talking about um, the good road for sure, but before we get there, I know you mentioned in, in your bio, there's a couple of, um, as you were um, sort of getting your, your feet wet into journalism and working for this this PBS, you had a chance to work on the Branch Covidians story, which I think, can you just share a little bit about that, what, what that sure. was? I think, you know, a lot of people may have forgotten about that story from Waco, but you were right there covering it all. Yeah. So the, the crazy part about that is, you know, I was, I was young. I was basically, um, had just, you know, finished my coursework from grad school. Um, I was in my early twenties and, um, started working for that PBS station in Waco. And, um, 
I'll never forget, you know, everybody knew. I knew some of the local t- other TV folks be- just because, you know, in a small town especially, you you start to know the other people from other broadcast networks and things. And so um, I knew the guy who had, who had gone out there actually on the very first day of the Ranch Davidian standoff and, you know, controversial about the fact that there were cameras out there and, you know, people knew that it was going to happen. And so um, – I, um, the, the, I guess it was the next day, um, the McNeil, what is, was now uh, called the PBS news hour, but was back then McNeil air news report. Um, I got a call, our station manager got a call and said, Hey, can you get somebody out there as soon as possible? Like this afternoon, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I was really me and, uh, and my, colleague terry uh, longbottom and i who was also by the way another missionary kid um he and i jumped in our van um had arranged they had arranged uh, mcneil lair had had arranged for a uh a big satellite truck all we needed to do was provide the camera feed and um so we got out there and and uh yeah that that began what was what would be weeks of terry and i hanging out in a van uh, all through the night waiting to see what would happen. <laughs> um, right. So that was, uh, that was crazy. I, I, um, used to say, and you know, I don't mean any disrespect in this to, to people who lost their lives, but I used to say that David Koresh bought my, uh, stereo system because they also McNeil Air paid me, um, through our station manager. I, you know, I, I got paid to do that. And, um, so that was as a you know somebody young starting out in their career was a big deal and um, ironically, now fast forward to uh, about four four or five years ago when we um, decided on for the Good Road, who would be our our first seasons um, what they call presenting station in PBS. Uh, I we Earl and I contracted with WETA in Washington D.C. Of course, who also produces. PBS NewsHour, and it was kind of weird that, uh, you know, life kind of came a full circle in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. So did you, um, like when you were like, so, okay, I went to, I went to journalism school at the University of Kansas. So um, I know a little bit of Big 12 rivalry there. Um, did you, I mean, did you have a preference on, <clears throat> like, cause I, I, I did television news for like six months and realized I hated it. And, and then immediately joined the, the dark forces of the PR <clears throat> PR world and went that way. I'm curious what led you from, I don't know if you got a taste of the news business and decided, you know what, I'm think I'm going to, you know, your, your, um, your interest is better in the long form type of storytelling. Well, I, you know, I, I went to school at Baylor with a lot of interest specifically in documentary and um, a lot of the grads, you know, from Baylor went either, well, there was the journalism department, which was very focused on journalism. There was our department, which was like telecom. And a lot of the people who were doing TV film things went on to either do the whole Hollywood thing Mm -hmm. or they went on to other places and other jobs and and different things. Um, I will say that that experience, interestingly, kind of led me away from journalism um, with the David Koresh incident. And I'll tell you why, you know, the, the whole experience was, was not a bad one in terms of just the production and the work. And it wasn't that, um, that that was a problem. It was when the, when the actual, um, you know, compound was ablaze, I'll never forget, you know, I'm there with, all these other journalists, um, you know, news media, um, video folks. And it just seemed in that moment with the comments they were making about the ability to leave and, you know, okay, we can go back and I get it now. I mean, you know, you got to get back to your family and some of those people had been camped out for a while, but I'm watching the scene going, Oh my gosh, there are literally children dying in there right now. And, I just, I didn't want to be part of an industry where you're kind of chasing news and going after things that, um, you know, seem very simple on the surface, 
when I could dig down deep into topics that are super complex. I mean, even looking back at, at the whole Branch Davidian story, you know, films have been made about it, documentaries have been made about it. It's um, what we were what we were seeing in that moment was not what was really happening um, in the way that uh, you know in the way that pe the news presented it. So for me, you know, I've, I chose a career of really doing more documentary. It started really, like I said, um, doing short stories, short form. Um, but what I do now is much more exciting to me because, um, well, first of all, I, I don't have any kind of agenda with, uh, or I like to think Earl and I don't have any kind of agenda with uh, the topics that we cover um, and, and stories we tell. Um, we truly, we truly want to look at the complexities of an issue. Um, I mean, and big issues, you know, you can talk about so many different things, climate change, you know, LGBTQ rights, whatever it is you're talking about, everybody likes to, in America, boil it down and it's super easy and yeah, it's super simple. But the reality is that almost every topic you can think of, major topic that impacts our lives in some way or another um is much more complicated that's why that's why earl says on the show uh he calls it the messy business of philanthropy or charity and that's true none of it's easy so what made you what made the both of you decide to focus on sort of this this philanthropy side of things but you're you're telling it from a very unconventional way and maybe from a way that people don't normally see um philanthropy in action yeah so i think um for me personally, uh, all those many years of working at the International Mission Board, I referenced earlier that experience of leaving um, Ambon in the middle of this kind of battle and knowing that I had literally risked my life for this content, um, coming back and telling that story to churches, I realized that people didn't really care if that's, I mean, they cared, but I didn't really have a way to to get to a larger audience and um you know i, I kind of have a mantra now actually uh, i'll give i'll give alex kendrick uh a uh, nod because you know the the kendrick brothers who make all of those films like courageous and stuff actually in my first film that i did when i was still working at the international mission board the insanity of god we visited them and he gave this idea to me that really planted a you know seed in my brain that I really you know he said what what why do you do the work you do um and think about it write it down actually like you know do you do this for you know national acclaim do you do this for awards you know do you do this for money or whatever and I really have rested on three top priority things for me um starting with and and in this in this uh progression um culture change i want people to know that the world is not as simple as they think it is and um you know that that um all the issues you think you have an answer for you know i i you know made the comment early on when earl and i started the show um that you know i i want for instance not every american to think that uh muslims are all out to you know to kill us because that was you know post kind of 9-11 sentiment in the country. And um, so that's when I really started to grasp what my job was, which is, you know, culture change and getting people to see things differently and not just peg everybody the way, uh, you know, people would like to. And so that second part of that really for me is you don't have culture change unless you're able to have a, a large audience. And um, that was the frustration at the International Mission Board. I, you know, had ideas and things I wanted to present to people, and you know, thirty people would see it. You know, yeah. um, which is then leads. You know, usually you have some sort of metric that you know it's it it isn't always money. It doesn't always have to be money, but some you know you're successful somehow. And um, so those three things are kind of what drive me. I want to I want to know that um, you know I'm impacting culture and, and I'm doing that um, 
you know, in some ways to a larger audience. And then I can define that for my life. It's important for me personally to know that I've been able to, you know, have larger impact and not every, I mean, not everybody has to do impact culture that way, but that's for me, that's what it is. And, um, right at the same time, Earl had just, uh, well, he was, he had owned, he owned a company called Good Done Great, which was managing the corporate social responsibility giving. He created a software um, that managed the employee giving, uh, the CSR giving at big companies. And um, so his interests had been, and, you know, had been for a while also in kind of nonprofit um, work. And incidentally, our show's not about necessarily nonprofits about it's about anybody who's just said you know there's a problem in this world and i think i can fix it and here's what i'm going to try to do at scale to fix it so so you're what you now like three seasons in to the show yeah three seasons we're going to start production actually um if all goes well we'll start production on on season four next month so far, then, um, what have you, I guess, what, what are some of the things, the takeaways that you've uncovered as you've talked to different people about the things that they want to, you know, change or are working on in this world? What are, what are some of the things that you're learning about what, what's happening, in, especially in and around culture? Because right now the culture seems to be very, and culture is always a hot topic, but certainly for in, in the faith-based world as well culture certainly red hot right now yeah i i mean quite frankly i would suggest that culture um is you know historically been the thing that from the dawn of man has you know been part of our existence and um you know what what does that mean well that means that everybody has a you know, a, a group of people they associate with and that group of people do things like eat together. That group of people has have a language often um, that's specific to, to their geography. So that issue of culture, you know, when we started out, we, we did some, and we will continue to do some focuses on things like, you know, um, areas where, you know, slums or people that had, you know, economic, socioeconomic um, issues and things. But I think the more we've gotten into it, we're, we're branching out to, because, you know, to do all kinds of different topics and things. Um, our connections at public television were a little like kind of scratching their head because uh, in season three, we did a, um, uh, really what I really liked uh, episode about um, Space Force and um, the whole military part of our current, um, you know, political structure. And one of the reasons that I was jazzed about that particular episode was that, you know, I've never been like, you know, well, first of all, I've never really thought that war was an answer for anything. Um, and there's just way too much conflict. I've, I've, I spent, you know, uh, 30, almost 30 years documenting conflict, not just around the world, but in, in my own, um, backyard. And, um, so, but I will say, and it's become kind of interesting to see the news of late. Um, the fact is that, uh, not everybody shares the peaceful view that I have. And to some degree, you have to be able to keep at bay um, and, you know, people who would do harm to the rest of the world and to other, other countries and other people. And quite frankly, um, you know, some of that is monitored and managed in the outer atmosphere, you know, and um, so it was interesting for me to get a look at these younger people talking about, you know, their passion for that and keeping people safe and mitigating against things like climate change and that kind of thing. So, and is it, you know, because you you are sort of your you know your own producer, like, and but you're still 
on the within the framework of PBS, like, do you have the do you have the flexibility, I guess, to tell your own story without necessarily a, a lot of um, maybe handholding from from any corporate overlord, or do you know? So, do you have the chance to to really learn the story and tell tell what's really happening? So, I'm not just saying this because I started with public television and now I'm heavily embedded in television. Public television. I will say that. For me, because Earl and I went on a, a path of discovery, we didn't just decide because I had a history with public television to do public television. Um, I will say that some of the other outlets that we looked at, whether it's cable, you know, t television, um, other broadcast networks, um, public media in general, for me, and the more I work and do my work, I realize this public media is a space where you can really tell tell your stories and not get um, picked apart by some corporate head who really doesn't care. They just want to make a buck. Um, and, you know, not to slam all the other, you know, kind of for-profit organizations, but you know, the PBS structure, it's, it is public media. It is not for profit or nonprofit. I'm not sure what the exact category is, but it is public media. And, 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 you know, people, we, the public do pay into it some. And as a result, my um, interactions with people like the folks at American public television and world channel at GBH and GBH in general have been very positive. They have not, um in any way uh tried to you know pick apart our content um at all and there's a real freeing part of that for you know a documentarian and a producer because what that allows us to do is talk about things that you know might be uncomfortable to other people we're not following some political agenda or quite frankly, any kind of religious agenda. Um, so if the story is good and the story, the, the subjects, more specifically, if the subjects who we interview um, explain themselves and it kind of makes tons of sense logically for Earl and I, we're kind of like, okay, cool. You know, that's what, that's what we want to, we want to give folks like that a platform. You know, we, um, as, as, as two, white guys, you know, in their middle of life, um, you know, we have always been cautious of the whole concept of like the white savior complex. And um, so Earl says it best, we, what we like to do is be a white canvas for other people, people of color and just other people of ideas and things where we're just kind of there as a way for them to be able to tell their ideas and share their stories and prompt, prompting them to do that. And so that's kind of been our goal and that's how we do our work. Sure. Uh, so as you look back then over, over three seasons, you know, what are some of the, what are maybe the, the couple of stories that you really are just, uh, you know, were most excited to tell and, and had, were just like, so, you know, for you, it was interesting to learn about. So, so the probably the closest, well, I'll, I'll say two of them from season season one were really important to me on so many levels. Um, one was a story we did in a place called Alabama Village, uh, which is outside of Mobile, Alabama. And um, Earl and I really had the opportunity to kind of embed ourselves with that community for um, really for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, Part of that was because we were building the show, trying to just find our way. So we kept going back and forth to Mobile. And um, really, I learned so much from uh, not just the, not just, um, the folks who, who run Light of the Village, which is uh, John and D Dolores Eads, which is actually, interestingly, a, a Baptist organization but also from the kids that we met and the people who were part of that um, community, um, some of which, you know, had grown up 
in very, very um, impoverished scenarios where, you know, a, a guy like Decino had grown up without electricity and running water in his house. And this is outside of Mobile, Alabama. That's mm -hmm. just uh, unbelievable to me. Um, so that's one. The other one is, and I, and I still communicate with this gentleman quite a bit. His name is Jojo. Um, he is a, a punk rocker in Myanmar, in Yangon, Myanmar, or you know, commonly from back in the day known as Burma. That one is near and dear to my heart because Burma or Myanmar is right across the border from Thailand. And um, I had done some work there uh, for IMB back in the day. But we got to meet this, this kid, you know, he's a kid to me, uh, Jojo, who just had this amazing story and outlook on life. And despite being living under huge oppression and you know genocide actually in parts of the country um you know jojo just had a positive outlook on on most everything and um would uh you know happily he and his buddies in the band rebel riot would happily go out on kind of on the behalf of food not bombs and book books not bombs and feed and educate street kids, not because anybody told them they had to do it or because they were getting paid some, an, you know, enormous amount by some major NGO, but because they were, you know, using scrapping together, scraping together their own financial means to do it on their own because they, um, you know, knew that was a problem in their community and they did it, fixed it. So people like JoJo really, really have inspired me and i stay in touch with him today um you know i, I usually am checking on checking up on him <laughs> hey man are you okay um on facebook messenger or something but uh, but yeah th those are the two that really stick out so you so obviously you've had a chance to see you know kind of tell stories that that occur both in the united states and then both you know then internationally as well and you know i think that's what um you know, a lot of people in my church, you know, they challenge us to is, um, you know, we've got to get out of our comfort zones, you know, because I think sometimes in the United States, right, we are comfortable and we, we, we tend to have everything that we need at the disposal within, you know, a swipe of a phone, we can have whatever we, our hearts desire delivered. Like what has been sort of the, but you've also seen the, the, the other side of, of uh, poverty in the U.S., but sort of compare and contrast what culture looks like in the U.S. versus what you've seen overseas. So it's funny because it, in a lot of ways, my comfort zone is overseas. <laughs> you know, it's weird, but um, you know, having come every the way the structure worked for us uh, in my parents' organization, we came back every four years for a year, and quite frankly. Uh, those years in in um, Louisiana tended to be the worst years of my life at my young age, uh, mm -hmm. mainly because I just didn't fit in. I didn't know where I was supposed to fit in. Um, I didn't at the time. It wasn't even you know I didn't fully understand it. But you know I went to Pineville High School, home of the Fighting Rebels, and I just that just didn't seem right for me <laughs> um, uh, growing up in in the International School of Bangkok. Um, so my comfort zone always has been kind of international. And one of the things that um, I love now, I've lived now in Richmond, Virginia uh, for longer than I lived in Thailand and anywhere else really. And uh, my kids were born here in Richmond and um, I do, I just love my community here. Um, but I think the, the, um, the, the challenge for everybody is, and, and I would extend um, culture beyond geography in the sense that um, your worldview can be expanded by being within another culture tremendously. And, um, you know, it's very hard to, um, well, let me just back up. One of the things we did at IMB uh, was I, I've been trained like with security kind of training that involved actually being kidnapped 
uh, in Idaho and being held, uh, you know, in a camp that was, you know, made to look like you've been kidnapped. And one of the things in that class that we, we learned pretty early on was that you don't, uh, people don't, your captors are never going to name you. They're not going to know your name. They're not going to want to talk about you uh, in, in that respect. That's why, you know, during the Holocaust, you were assigned a number. Um, it's much easier in life to consider people a number uh, than it is to consider them, you know, Craig Martin. Um, it's a lot easier for people to, you know, call me, you know, whatever it is, or even a term, you know, whatever you want, term you want to use, liberal or whatever, whatever the term is, it's much easier than to know the person and actually get to understand the person. And I feel like in the U.S. that's, and, and, and by the way, I, I say the U.S., this is a global phenomenon. You have to know the people. Uh, if you want to be critical of a certain culture or a certain group of people, you have to kind of know them first before you can be critical. And then um, for me, I don't know why you'd be critical of anybody else's culture, but um, I'll give you an example in terms of just kind of a race thing. Thailand, in Thailand, you know, I like, I used to like to think that Thais weren't racist, but the fact is that you have Northern Thais who are agrarian, who are much darker skinned Thais. Um, and then you have city ties where I grew up who are much whiter because they're in offices and just the pigmentation, you know, effect happens. And, um, you know, you, you have ties who are Bangkok ties who often use whitening creams to be made whiter wow. uh, because they don't want to be associated with the agrarian ties from the Northeast. And that's not a, that's not a personal criticism against, you know, Bangkok ties in any way. Cause I, you know, that's the group I, associate and feel more comfortable with but um you know poor farmer up in the northeast um you know it's uh it can it can be a divisive issue in every culture every community nobody's blameless in in that regard and uh incidentally as a side note i will say if anybody from my bangkok thai you know group are listening that we all know that northeastern thai food which they call Ahan Isan is the better food. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, and you know, as I'm a, you know, have reached middle age status myself, and that's one of the things that I, I do feel like I, um, I hopefully get a chance to do at some point is to. to I haven't traveled internationally, I'm, and I'm not counting Mexico as traveling internationally. Honestly, I mean, I know it is in some ways, but I mean, I'm talking go over a massive ocean and go you know, be really far away from home. Uh, I haven't done that yet. And so I think that's something that, um, that I really want to hope to hope to take advantage of. Well, I'll tell you, practically speaking, Neil, my wife is from Puerto Rico. And while, you know, it is part of the United States, a common, it's a commonwealth of Puerto Rico, very tightly connected to the United States. Um, a lot of Americans feel like they've traveled internationally when they go down to Puerto Rico. Hmm. And um, part of that is because, you know, predominantly Spanish language, um, predominantly uh, food that, you know, if you get to out in the country and stuff, it's going to be Puerto Rican food, which is not exactly, you know, burgers and fries. Mm -hmm. Although there is, unfortunately, a ton of that. <laughs> Burger King has made its way to Puerto Rico. No shocker. Uh, yeah, shocker. But, uh, but I will say... You know, for any American, I know this sounds crazy, but if you haven't gone down to the U.S. Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico or a place like that, super easy to get to. Don't necessarily even need a passport. Uh, well, you don't need a passport. Um, so that's, a you know, that's always a first good step. Um, and Mexico, I will say, I, you know, depending on where you are in Mexico, uh, parts of it feel like the U.S. and, you know, super comfortable for folks. Uh, parts of it obviously do not. I've been um you know several places in mexico whether it's on the border or you know more um within country sure. but um you know no it's it really isn't neil about the geography it's about um immersing yourself in a culture that you're not used to so yeah you know i don't know how many 
for instance, Sudanese or Iraqis there are in a place like Kansas City, I, I suspect there are quite a few. Yeah, for sure. Pockets and communities. So, you know, yeah. that's, that's as, as uh, easy as just going, finding those folks and just hanging out with them. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> Great point. Um, hey, before, before we run out of time, I, I do want to make sure yeah. we talk about um, a new project that you're working on. And this is really how... I sort of came to meet you through uh, Rodney Hammer, who was uh, founder of uh, Restoration House, now Rehope in Kansas City, which is a, an organization doing amazing things to help sex trafficking victims get out of that and, and get back on their feet. Can you talk a little bit more about the project you're working on and with, with Rodney and what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Rodney and I used to work uh, together at the International Mission Board many, many years ago. Um, and he contacted me several years, well, whenever, a couple of years, time, time's flying right now. But uh, <laughs> he contacted me and asked if I could help um, at that point, uh, Restoration House of Greater Kansas City, um, get some sort of media on, on air about, or in theaters, about this topic of human trafficking and it's weird because i had been i had been really really interested in this uh topic for years now because of a, a pastor friend of mine um uh, jason page who's still a pastor is a pastor out in uh, portland and um so jason and i had discussed this this uh topic of human trafficking for years and then i met a woman christina zorich who's um who had a film. She's actually the, the daughter of Olympia Dukakis. And she had a film called, has a film called The New Abolitionists. And that was mainly about um, human trafficking, specifically in my kind of home, original home country of Thailand and next door in Cambodia. So when Rodney approached me, it was like, oh my gosh, this is all coming together. I really need to be working on this. You know, God's telling me something with this particular project. So we started that. And uh, as, as you referenced, there have been changes within his organization, uh, you know, making the shift to Reho. But um, we're hoping to tell the stories of people in that industry, if you will, from all angles. So there are restorative justice issues as it relates to the pimps who have been in kind of, in some many cases, generational pimps. So their grandfather was a pimp, their father was a pimp, and then they became a pimp, for instance. Then of course, there's the horrible tragic stories of the survivors. Um, and, you know, every time I go, or both times I've been to the gala and listen to those stories, we want to definitely tell those stories. And then there's all the in-between stuff, whether it's law enforcement or, you know, the, the different issues related to tribal nations and the and tribal lands and the fact that, you know, one of the worst statistics in terms of enti entire topic of human trafficking are on tribal lands where the tribal police just don't have the resources to follow up on all these, you know, young girls and young boys who've been taken, you know, taken. Um, so that to me is, um, for me, it, it's a passion project at, at the highest level. I, you know, I want to do, um, do right by the story. As we mentioned at the beginning, you know, of our conversation, um, I definitely want to get it on the big screen and get uh, you know, it started, we started looking at it more as an episodic series, kind of like The Good Road. We're going to start now with a film that will challenge people with the overall idea and then hopefully be able to come back to the idea of an episodic series because it's just the topic's too big. You know, you, can, you can't do it justice in one film. Yeah, that for sure. And I've, you know, and I've been blessed to be able to, to talk to a lot of different people for whatever reason, Kansas City seems to be home to a lot of amazing people and is that are fighting against uh, trafficking. So I've had a chance to talk to a lot of them. And yeah, there are so many different different stories to tell and different ways um, ways to tell it. I guess as you're thinking about this this initial iteration for for what you're working on, have you kind of 
solidified on the, the main point or what you think might be the, the driving narrative behind in this initial film? Well, I mentioned the restorative justice issue. Um, I will say that, you know, uh, you know, as a, as personally as somebody who has, you know, had struggles with things like alcohol and, and things like that, that people are very, um, very willing to talk about the other. Um, you know, I know, for instance, um, people who've had serious issues with addiction to drugs, and I have some very close friends whose parent, who were the parents of a child who overdosed on drugs, and it's easy to say the addict, you know, the addict, the pimp, um, and the reality is that everybody's broken, everybody has their own faults and issues, and you know, but everybody can, um, God can redeem everybody. And, you know, Jesus didn't come to work with uh, the theologians and scholars. He came to work with the prostitutes. And so for me, this topic is a very important one that um, we just need to stop thinking of each person in our community as the other, you know, and stop giving people labels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and I, you know, from my perspective, you know, and, and I've not been shy about sharing my story and I, I'm, I'm not going to be because I, I come from, you know, one of those different boxes of the story, which is the men that are involved with this and the men that are driving the demand. And, you know, and I want to help, uh, you know, just as, as you share, talk about the things that have impacted you and addictions, that kind of thing. You know, I want to do the same thing to help show men that look we're called to be better you know and, and not give in to some of the poison that our culture offers uh, around sex and pornography and things like that so um yeah i'm uh, i'm always looking forward you know yeah and now five months sober uh i don't look back i will say at the gate at the gala and you know recent gala it does it does hit me hard to hear that you know, drugs and alcohol were the way that a lot of um, survivors were kept at bay. And it just made me think that, you know, um, in our lives, things that keep you uh, out, out, of your, out of your own consciousness, you know, things that keep you uh, unaware of the world around you, or that's not, that can never be a positive. It's, um, you know, you, you gotta, if you really wanna help people, you know, I, I, I talk about this sometimes. I'll say, you know, I've, how many planes have I been on where they say, you know, if you sit in the in the exit row, can you help, can you assist yourself and others get off the plane? I want to be able to assist others and get off the plane. Yeah, yeah no doubt. You know, it's interesting because, you know, listening to one of the survivor stories at the, the Rehope Gala, it, it, it just for a moment there, I, I gave in to the thought of, gosh, what am I doing here? Right, because I helped contribute to sex trafficking, and and that's one of that's probably the thing that, as I, um, that that opened my eyes when I got out of this was how many, how many of these women that are in the sex industry that are, are trafficked, and it's just it's almost all right, and you just don't know the person that you're meeting, or you know, or, or you just don't know their background, why they're there, and how they got there. And uh, it was it was hard to hear that, but it's at the same time it's it also uh, for me just another amazing <laughs> amazing reminder from God of, of what He can do in someone's life. Well, I, I won't lie. You know, when I was drinking a lot, uh, I would look at out at other people and say, you know, everybody's better than me. Why can't I be? Why can't I be good like that? Why can I? Why am I the guy drinking too much? Why can't I be better? And now that I, you know, have stopped drinking, I will, I will say that, you know, I mean, honestly, I have new eyes at that. I'm, you know, I'm no worse than anybody. I mean, I'm no worse than anybody. Um, I am uh, a person who is flawed and needed help. And, you know, God, God did that in my life and God can do that in everybody's life. Absolutely. If, if that's not the case, <clears throat> what's the point of the gospel? Yeah. Sorry.
No, no, ab absolutely. Um, well, Craig, I, I appreciate your time. Um, I, I love what you're doing. And um, where, how can people find you and find um, some of the, the creative that you're producing? Yeah, so, <clears throat> sorry. Um, the good, I don't know what that did, but that made my voice go away. Um, <laughs> that's weird. Um, so uh, if, if people will go to thegoodroad.tv, that's the website. Um, we try to do most of our, um, you know, public stuff through that site. It, it'll say good all over when you get there. And you can also do good all over TV. Um, and then I, you know, I have uh, other things I'm involved in, like the record label that I that I've helped start shockorecords.com. Um, and then philanthropyjournal.com. I just have a few things going. <laughs> awesome, man. That's cool. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, Craig, thanks again for your time. I, I, you. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah. Thanks for the platform. Absolutely. Thanks again to Craig for coming on the Unmasked podcast this week. I truly appreciate his time. And I'll put a link to um, his website down in the show description uh, in the podcast notes. So coming up next week, I'm going to be talking to Kent Dickerson. Kent is the self-described remade preacher. He's a Christian writer, teacher, singer, and lecturer. And he calls himself the remade preacher because that's um, he is remade. As God brought him back to full-time ministry after leaving it almost 30 years ago due to the same associated the shame that he had associated with the struggles with pornography that he's had throughout his entire life. But now he's kicked it and he's back to preaching the good word. So uh, I'm looking forward to sharing Kent's journey next week. And again, that's a Monday, Monday, May 1st. I'm put it down right here. I'm committing to that. And we're going to get back to Unmasked Mondays. All right, everybody. Hey, thanks for coming on this journey with me. Thanks for being here for today's episode. I, I truly appreciate it. And you can uh, go to neilgetslow.com. You can learn more about me and my journey. Contact me there. I uh, would love to hear from you. And and just remember, Jesus didn't come to hang out with the saints and the righteous. He came to hang out with the sick and the sinners of the world, just like you, very much just like me but not to revel in our sin, but to call us out of it. Have a great week, everybody.